Hey everyone, it's Michael Howard here at Photo. I want to give you a word of caution with this podcast episode. Um, There's some language and we do talk about some adult themes related to homicide. The content may not be suitable for all ages. We'll be posting some of Richard's work from uh, his American Homicide Project on our substack at photoapp.substack.com. Some of those images, as a word of warning, are also very difficult to look at, and they are graphic and violent. So if uh, that is something that you do not want to see, then I would suggest not visiting our substack for this episode. Uh, But if you do want to see uh, the type of work he's creating, then you can see that there. This is part two of a three-part series with Richard Sherum. If you missed the first episode, you can go back to listen to that. Um, And then we will have the third part out later this week. Thank you so much for listening. American Homicide is is a project that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And the root of it is, it's all based in the same ideology that I've always had as a photographer. It's trying to get close to people, to photograph them, to show the general public that it's more complex and, and closer to them than they realize. It goes all the way back to even being a kid, you know, breaking down those barriers between people and public apathy. So the public is apathetic about violence and murder. It's in everything that we consume. When you turn on Netflix, every other movie or every other thing they have on there is either murder-related or violence-related or a documentary about a serial killer or any of that stuff. And I understand that kind of stuff has been part of entertainment for a long time. And it's it's understandable to a certain degree because it allows people to to have the thrill of being in danger evolutionarily without actually being in danger. They get to turn the TV off and go to bed that night. But if you think of that, and it has a cumulative effect on our, on our society, decade after decade after decade, I used to think it was all nonsense when people would talk about, oh, video games don't affect you know this, and movies don't affect this, or I don't know now. You know, when we have as many mass shootings as we have. I know there's other issues involved with that, with the access to guns and all that, but I think that it's all related. I think it's all part of this bigger lack of empathy. And whenever you see someone get murdered in cold blood, day after day, night after night, even in cartoons, even in kids' cartoons, you know, people fight, people are annihilated. What happens is that people become desensitized to this understanding of life and death until it affects them. So with homicide, I wanted to look at it at this societal phenomenon that's been with us for as long as we've been walking on the earth in three parts. Victims and their families, the investigative ecosystem, meaning detectives, judges, medical examiners, prosecuting attorneys, defense attorneys, crime scene analysts and the analysts, fingerprint analysts, that kind of, the whole ecosystem revolved around homicide. Like if we were to snap our fingers and and the act of homicide would just disappear from our existence from here on out, all of these people would be out of a job. 
That's what I looked for. Who are those people? So the investigative ecosystem, and then the third part would be perpetrators and their families. Now that's the most important part because all of these documentaries that I mentioned earlier and all these books are almost all focused on the experience of victims and their families, and rightly so to a certain degree. The investigative ecosystem is a lot harder to penetrate because there's such an insular group. So there's lots of documentaries and mostly drama shows about detectives and stuff like that uh, because most detectives, you know, except for First 48, that's why it was so wildly popular, but even that is highly, highly fictionalized to a certain degree. You know, reshooting shots that they didn't get and, you know, weird stuff like that. It's very kind of fake reality TV in a way. And that's the closest people have really gotten to being inside a homicide unit. So I wanted to go and actually immerse myself and document these people as individuals. Like, how does homicide affect detectives, right? We don't really talk about that. How does it affect them as individuals? How does it affect their families? What does that look like? How do you translate that visually? I was interested in that. And not just them, but medical examiners and judges and what, what the whole process. Who are these people in reality? So that part of it, and then with the perpetrators and their families, that's the real uncracked egg. There's not a lot of information about these perpetrators after the fact. Every once in a while, you'll see a documentary where somebody goes in and interviews them in prison and stuff like that. But even then, it's all dramatization, you know, scary music and that kind of thing. But nobody talks to them as individuals. Who were they before they committed murder? How did they grow up? Did they grow up with both parents in their home? I sent questionnaires to over a thousand murders and uh, about 200 replied. And out of that 200, I'm going to go visit about 30. And in that original questionnaire was questions like, tell me about the first time you fell in love. Tell me about your strongest memory as a child. What was the best day of your life? What was the worst day of your life? If you could tell the whole entire world something about yourself, what would that be? That's the type of questions that aren't really asked to these people. And so looking at homicide from that angle, it's interesting to me. And then more importantly, their families. You never hear from the families of perpetrators. In the United States, there's over 150 organizations that do uh, psychoanalytic work and therapy and stuff like that for victims' families. In the United States, for families of perpetrators who have also lost somebody to this act, there are zero. Zero. There's not one person for them to talk to. And it's not like they can go on a forum somewhere and say, hey, my son just killed some killed his girlfriend. Is there anybody I can talk to about? You know what I mean? Like nobody cares about them. They're just as guilty. They're exiled out of their communities. You know, some of these perpetrators' families that I talked to, their son did something stupid at a party 25 years ago, and they still hear stuff at the grocery store. People still whisper stuff to them. Their son's a murderer. You know, that kind of thing. It affects their holidays. It usually breaks their families apart. It ruins everybody. And so I'm trying to look at homicide from a 30,000 foot view. And the only way that I can do that is getting really close. And I know that those sound antithetical to each other. But the only way that I can get a good overall view of homicide and what it means to our society is to get extremely close. Uh, and right now, I'm done with the detectives. I've done a lot of the victims' families and interviewing them, photographing them. A lot of them have homemade memorials at their house. And I guarantee you, a lot of those people that I mentioned earlier, that, you know, mothers that now they, they've lost a son, that kind of thing, now they see it everywhere. Now they understand how, how ubiquitous 
murder is in our society. How it's in every video game, how easily you can just go up to someone in Grand Theft Auto and blow the back of their head off. And you get awarded for it. So now where they didn't care about those things before, now it's ever present. They can't get away from it. They can't go watch movies like John Wick where John Wick walks in and kills 30 people in 10 seconds. Just mows them down. And once you work homicide cases and once you go to homicide scenes and you see someone's back of their head blown off or you see someone who's been stabbed in the throat, you can't watch movies like that anymore. I can't watch movies like that anymore. I, I see it for pure bloodlust. And it's really, it's really sickening. And I'm not some evangelical trying to change the world and all that. I just want people to understand that maybe desensitization to that type of behavior is probably not a healthy thing for themselves or their kids psychologically. The American Homicide Project, there's images in there that it's hard for me to look at. They're hard for me to look at, and I'm not even there. I just can't imagine the things you've seen just because I know a little bit about the project because you, you were so embedded with it. Like you didn't get the break that the detectives got because you were just constantly going to these scenes. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious what that did to you and the trauma mm-hmm. and like how you're processing it and dealing with it. I'm okay now, but there for a little while, it got a little hairy. You know, I will, I will admit that. And I'm, and I'm, I mean, I've seen a lot anyway, you know, when I photographed children, like I said, for almost four years that were uh, dying of cancer. You know, I used to go and I'd photograph these children dying of cancer and I'd see some of these procedures that they went through and what their parents were going through. I mean, I'd go to the parking lot in the, in the hospital where I knew nobody was and I'd cry, you know, and, and because I couldn't, couldn't show that to who I was photographing. I don't know. I just felt like I couldn't at that time. But that was at the very beginning of my career before I had a really true understanding of what my role was. Got emotional or anything like that on scene at these homicide scenes. Well, I, I take that back. There was one scene where I got pretty emotional, but it wasn't like tears emotional. It was anger. I got really, really angry. There was children involved. Just the carelessness of it. But as far as dealing with it, it got a little hairy there for a little while. I was drinking a lot. I knew I was drinking a lot because it got to the point where I didn't, I mean, every night I'd go to bed. I didn't know if I was waking up at two in the morning to go to a homicide. You know, I had to sleep by my phone uh, for all those nights. And so it started to affect me in that regard. And I started to really, really understand why these police and these detectives are so insular. People just don't understand. It was weird. Like when I was working on the side and and I would, uh, there'd be a little neighborhood gathering or something like that. And I'd go and talk to people. And, you know, some of my neighbors, they they know what I do. And so they were asking me, hey, how's how's it going? That kind of thing. And it's like, you can't really explain it, (laughs) you know? Because people, they want to know, but they want to, they don't want to know. And so people are like, oh, yeah, oh, okay, well, that's a little too much information. Uh, I'm going to go over here now. You know, like that, that's kind of the experience that I would get. And that's how these detectives are. Like, they would tell me the same. Like, they, they don't have friends outside of the, out of the unit or outside of the, the force, usually. It's very difficult for them to, to maintain friendships from someone who's like an accountant. Because those people just live in a different reality. It's a totally different reality of living, of seeing the world. I would be at a restaurant, for instance. I remember uh, I was working homicide for two months at this point. I was at a restaurant eating lunch by myself, and I'm watching everything around me. And I've, I've always done that anyway. I've always been very observant around me, not because of paranoia, just because I just of who I am. And I saw this truck pull up outside. I could look outside the restaurant where the windows were, the front door was, and I saw this truck pull up all of a sudden, like in a hurry. And he gets out of the truck, slams the door. He comes inside. 
in my mind immediately is this dude's going to pull a gun and start shooting. Like he's here, his wife works here, she's been cheating on him, or he used to work here and he got fired. I'm already preparing and looking around me. I see a little girl and her mother sitting to the left of me. My immediate thought is I'm going to go grab that little girl and get under the table because I've seen hundreds of surveillance videos of murders right after they happened. Like I'm at the murder scene, there's the guy or the woman or whatever on the ground. We're there at the scene, working the scene, and I'm there with the detectives watching the surveillance video of it just happening. Sometimes I would be in public and I would look at a situation and I would see it almost as if I'm watching a surveillance video as it's happening. So that kind of thing where it really started to mess with my mind was unhealthy. And I knew that I was starting to become a little paranoid about those things, you know, unreasonably paranoid about those things. And, you know, and, and when you see my, uh, like my love life was affected by it, honestly, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm an open book. I'm transparent. These things need to be talked about sometimes. And my love life was, was affected by it because of all the um, deceased women I saw that were not clothed. And so that affected me. Like I couldn't have intimate relations for a while because it was, it was difficult for me to see something like that and not think of them. I know that's very, that's very graphic. And I haven't told you, I've never said that before to anyone other than detectives. That's the truth. That's the kind of reality these detectives live with every day. This is how it affects them. And some of them have been in that unit for eight, nine, 10, 12. One guy has been there for 17 years. I can't imagine. I did it for almost a year. So yeah, it affected me for a little bit and I'm better now. My last day with the detectives was April 1st of this year. So it's been a few months. I'd say I'm back to normal, but I, I never look at movies and all that stuff the same. And I, saw, and I saw way too many suicides than anybody should ever see. When the book comes out, I mean, people obviously will be able to see it if they want to. So I'm just going to briefly describe a little bit of what you've seen, uh, but just some of the suicides, you know, hoarders where people had forgotten that somebody lived there, there was nobody there for them. There's like a picture of like a burned, like severely burned victim, decomposed body, the whole spectrum. A lot of people listen to podcasts and they listen to all these true crime things and they, they you know, people describe some of the stuff of the conditions of the body. But when you see it and you see the people that are having to clean up afterwards and just, it just brings it to a whole real level that we don't pay attention to, like, you know, like you're saying, which is the point. That's the point, Michael, because these people who watch all that and listen to all these podcasts for entertainment, they don't understand the reality of it. So why am I showing these images? It's not, to, it's not for some kind of gross effect. You know, I, I'm not enjoying this when I'm photographing it. It's because I want people to understand that when they see John Wick walk into a room and kill 30 people in 10 seconds, that there's a real life consequence to that. They need to understand what the reality side of that is. The very last murder I worked was a quadruple murder. Four people killed, okay, in an apartment, shot to death. One guy in the closet must have had... 15 rounds in him. He was the victim. He was the target. These other three people died just because they were there. That's not all wham, bam, shoot them up entertainment. These people lost their lives. Their futures are over. Their stories are done. That's the only way that they'll really be remembered. There's real life consequences to these things that we find so entertaining. And so, yeah, you're right. Those images are tough. But I'm, why am I showing that? Because I want to also show how tough it is for these detectives, the stuff they have to see so that you can sleep good at night, so that you don't have to worry about it, 
so that hopefully if you're not the victim, that they catch the murderer. Okay, so you can sleep good at night. These people sacrifice a lot of themselves mentally and physically in order for you to jog around your neighborhood and feel okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? And people don't give them the credit they deserve. And trust me, I was a big, big critic of the police department. Okay, I've always been a big critic of police. I'm anti-authoritarian just by my very nature. You know, anti-authority. Being able to see these people up close as real humans and seeing what they actually do, man, I am, the public has no idea how grateful they should be. And that's just Dallas. Shit. Think about Houston, New York, Miami, Philadelphia. Yeah, cops aren't perfect. Trust me, but nobody's perfect. And if you had to see what they saw every day, nine out of 10 people would buckle under that. They'd have to go to therapy for the rest of their life. And these people do it day in and day out. So all I'm saying is, is that you, those tough images that you're talking about, I'm showing that because I want people to see it's, it's not gross porn. I want people to understand that I'm trying to get them to experience for half a second what these people experience. So in the book, hopefully when they look at the victim's side and the victim's families, and they see those interviews and they read those interviews, and then they look at the investigative part of it and see the homicide scenes, then they're able to really fully understand why this is such a tragedy for all involved. That's the point of it. The, the book, just from what I've heard a little bit about your plans for some of the layout with um, American Homicide seems very fascinating. I mean, you, I know you're, you're including like pictures of the victims and the perpetrators, like their school pictures, and like elementary yeah, and things. when they were children. Um, so I don't know if you can talk about some of those things you're going to also include in the book to kind of really tell the, the holistic story is the approach you're taking with this. I wanted to give some sort of other image of both the victims and the perpetrators before this happened. This all ties back to, like I said, my ideology, you know, of time, you know, of obsession with time and this interconnectedness that we all have and how close we are to one another more so than we realize. So yeah, on the victim side, a lot of the victims' families that I've been interviewing, I've also been collecting photographs of the victims of when they were 10 or younger, mostly school portraits. So in the book, I want to have some sort of full double-page spread collage of a lot of these school-age photos of victims, whether they were killed when they were 30 or whether they were killed when they were 8. So you can see them when they still have all that potential for a future. You know, it's the same ideology and the same strategy behind the homeless children when I said that I knew that if I could get that, using that as a tactic to really drive home to the general public that these kids are a lot closer to you than they think they are, than the public thinks they are. It's the same thing with attaching these school-age photos. Anybody with a kid who goes to school is getting school-age photos of them. So when you see a, a full double-page spread of all these children that you know, you know, that they don't know yet in these photos, when that photo was taken, they didn't know. And their parents didn't know. And their parents got this school-age photo and said, oh, darling, you look so cute. Not knowing that they would grow up to be murdered. And as a viewer, when you look at that and you have the advantage of time and knowing that these children are going to grow up to have their life taken, their future is going to be wiped out, that really brings it home. And that really brings it home to anyone with a kid or who sees a kid 
guarantee you see some shit like that and then you go to the park and you see some kids running around you're gonna think of that that to me that's powerful that's me popping that bubble of apathy whether you like it or not and so on the perpetrator side i'm doing the exact same thing and i know that's going to piss a lot of people off because it denotes that i'm equalizing the two and i'm not for that side of it i want you to look at those that double page spread of school-aged photos knowing that those children are going to grow up to take the life of another now that tells me or what i want out of that is I want people to understand that that's a call to action for a lot of these kids who need help. One of the questions that I'm asking in that questionnaire that I mentioned to the murderers, I'm trying to find similarities in them. One of the questions I asked is, did you grow up seeing violence as a child? And every single one of them that is written back, yes. I saw my parents fighting. I saw my dad hit my mom. I saw my mom beat my dad up. You know, brother beat the shit out of me. It's all violence related. They grow up seeing it, they're desensitized to it. It's a mode of action. It's a way of solving problems. And then you couple that with drugs or alcohol that some of these communities get into, well, then you're just waiting for something to happen. It's not a if, it's a when. When people see that double page spread of these school-aged children who are five, six years old, knowing that they're gonna grow up to take the life of another, to me that denotes hope. It's like almost like you can go back in time and see this kid right when this photo is taken or right after that photo is taken when he's walking home from school and just and save him before he gets to that point. Think of all the kids that are out there right now. They're going to grow up to take the life of another. We know it's going to happen. What are those things that can be done to, to help them? So that, that's the point of that. You know, that is, that's the one thing that I love, that I really get off on. It's popping people's bubbles when it comes to apathy. I want, I want them to understand exactly where I'm coming from, why it's important, whether they realize it yet or not. You know what I mean? So I want to thank Richard for being open and vulnerable and honest with us. Um, about his project and everything he's been through, um, creating it and documenting it. If you'd like to see more of his work, go to richardsharam.com. We also have uh, some photos from this project on our substack at photo, F-O-T-O, app.substack.com. If you like this podcast, feel free to uh, rate and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, anywhere like that. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do that by becoming a paid subscriber of our Substack. It helps us uh, produce more episodes like this. And uh, we're also building a new photo sharing app for photographers. And it also helps uh, support us as we build that. So we will have the third episode of uh, my conversation with Richard Sherum out very soon. And I just want to thank you as always for listening and thank you so much for telling others uh, about the podcast. Uh, It's meant a lot to me. All right. Thank you so much.